0: Welcome to Robot Friends, the podcast that actively harms its audience. Episode thirty-six: Eigenrobot Robot versus Science Fiction. Okay, I think we're it live. Alive?
1: It's on the internet.
0: Yeah, well, <laughs> I think I think we're good. Um, everybody, hello. Welcome to Robot Friends, uh, the podcast that actively harms its audience. I am here with the entire panel of um, Prometheus Award nominees for twenty. Is it the twenty 2020 twenty or twenty twenty one cycle? Twenty twenty one. I don't know what what year it is. I have I have a young kid. Um, welcome, everybody. Time. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I guess I guess to start off, um, I don't know how much of my audience is familiar with Prometheus. You know, a, a lot of people that I'm active with on Twitter follow follow Travis um, under his pseudonym and are familiar with his work. Um, but it's you know, science fiction is a bigger place, and the Prometheus you know award is bigger than the Travis, of course. Um, so I wonder if we could start out just going through everyone and um, give you a chance to introduce yourself and talk about your book a bit. Um, so, maybe, maybe Carl, kick it off since uh, you you had the idea of pulling this all together.
2: All right, hi, I'm uh, Carl Gallagher, or I, sorry, I should specify Carl K. Gallagher when I'm talking about myself as an author because there's several other Carl Gallaghers running around on Amazon and publishing books. Uh, I am the author of Storm Between the Stars, a uh, the beginning of a new Space Opera series, which uh, looks at. You know, how controlling can a government be? How can people resist that control? And what's different ways people can organize themselves to have a good life? And this sort of taps into the Prometheus because the Prometheus wants to reward books that talk about liberty, talk about resisting oppression. And so they're not just wanting books that, you know, are having new ideas straight but new ideas about people and governance and so this is you know something that uh, has been going on you know with a few interruptions over the decades and uh, they have recognized a whole bunch of books including some of my uh, very favorites Um, and they do try to be a little more capitalist friendly than some of the other awards and part of how they signify that is that as the word, you get an actual ounce of gold. So you're not just getting a pretty piece of art; you are getting something of significant value to sustain you if one of the apocalypses we write about come to pass.
0: <laughs> okay, that's excellent. I um, are one one thing that I'm curious about: are other are awards typically unfriendly to capitalism, or is this just you know exceptionally? Uh... The uh,
3: Worldcon, the, the Hugo Award, used to be uh, pretty neutral about capitalism, but uh, that uh, seems to have changed in the last few years. I was an author for a number of years back in the 80s and the 90s, and that was phase one with the Worldcon, and they seemed pretty, pretty neutral about it. I was a, uh, a nominee for the Hugo back in those days but I came back into the science fiction field a couple of years ago. Uh, and when I went to WorldCon, I was quite a- astonished by the uh, uh, narrowness of the range of attitudes that you
4: could find at the world science fiction convention.
0: Wow. Okay. Um, and, and this is, yes, this is Mark. Greg Sigler. Great. And um, yeah, that that's really fascinating to me. I mean, I've you know, I, I think there's this. Well, I guess we can I guess we can talk about the fandom and and changes in the fandom in recent years. Maybe that that lead to something like Prometheus or like a revival of Prometheus. Um,
1: since I, I have this idea, there's a whole range <laughs> of uh, awards, anti-capitalistic awards that we haven't uh, considered the the Oscars, the Golden Globe. Uh, you know, these are uh, hostile ground, uh, at, at the very best. Uh, uh, you know, as long as you know, we don't want to just limit this to uh, changes in fandom,
4: Public yeah. Media,
1: okay, that's uh, <clears throat> uh, yeah, yeah, I guess the Pulitzer, and uh, uh, I don't know, there's a whole bunch of uh. Awards that uh, I don't even bother looking at anymore because uh, uh, it's a sort of a mutual admiration society. And I'm, I don't I don't I don't I'm not one of the mutuals.
0: <laughs> and this this uh, and you're a Barry B. Longyear. Is that no, right?
1: Sorry. Yes, I am.
0: OK. And please do feel free to show your books. Um...
1: <laughs> uh, well, OK. OK. I- if if uh, if I could have done a virtual screen thing, I could have flashed my book cover, but uh, uh, I don't have a copy. I, I got my reading copies, but they're a little and the audience is going, isn't
3: going go. to see anything on the screen anyway. We're we're just seeing each other for our personal entertainment,
1: right? So uh, there it is.
0: <laughs> <laughs> What's the title?
1: Oh uh, well, uh, it, it's part of a series of books called The War Whisperer, and the one that uh, was nominated uh, for me is Book Five, which is subtitled The Hook.
0: Cool. Well, congratulations, and and I should say that I'll I'll have links to all of your nominated books once I post this up. Um. Okay, cool. Who have we not covered yet? Um let's see here. Matt yes, um Mackie. I this is a suboptimal platform in some ways. Mackie, um I only have your first name Chandler. displayed. Um Chandler, Chand- yes, what are you up for?
4: <coughs> Who's up, Mackie?
0: Um Let's see who who's not covered yet. Um let's see here. Yes,
4: Dennis, please. uh, Dennis E. Taylor. I'm uh nominated for Heaven's River, which is the fourth book of the Bobiverse series. Um it's I guess what I would say accidentally libertarian, uh in in that the characters naturally moved that way because of their personalities. And uh, in Heaven's River, things get a little complicated. and I think that's what makes uh, that book politically at least one of the most interesting before.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting. There's um, I mean you mentioned accidentally libertarian. I think there's a Twitter account that does that. people posting things that just just turn into this this kind of accidental libertarian, um, you know, advocacy. And, and also there's this idea of libertarianism as kind of a personality type, like in some ways, less a philosophy and, and more just like a stance or an attitude, which I like quite a lot. Um.
1: It's also <laughs> a problem. There are, um, a speak- and- there are a lot of people. There are a
3: lot of people who might, whom I speak to who, uh, uh, think they are not libertarian, but when I ask them about, you know, if, if they're moderates uh, on the political spectrum, and when I ask them a bunch of questions about, you know, should should the government uh, leave people uh, free to do what they want? And should people be allowed to spend money on what they want? I keep, I frequently wind up telling them that, you know, you're really actually a libertarian at heart. But I'm not going to try to persuade you of that. <laughs> do, you, do you think
0: it's Do you think it's a branding problem then? If people hold a lot of libertarian attitudes, but then you know, sort of don't identify with with libertarianism with a big L or well, a small L. Well, pro-
3: one of the problems the libertarians have is that uh, th- their I- their ideas of freedom are. Sufficiently popular that people keep on hijacking their terminology. Uh, there was a time long ago when the word liberal means what libertarian means today, but it was so popular and everybody liked it so much that people started uh, 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 started hijacking it for other things, and now it means something liberal has nothing to do with the concept of liberty anymore. Uh, uh, And you can see this in other fields as well. uh, In the world of science, you know, the words in science, which is a well-respected area of human endeavor, uh, also finds its words being captured. There's something floating around now called critical race theory, uh, which if if you read the first couple of paragraphs of the Wikipedia article about it, it's not a theory at all, you know. I mean, it's—I uh, don't know how I would characterize it, but there's nothing uh, in race, race theory, theory that, that <laughs> has anything to do with the way a scientist uses the term theory. Yeah, so that's
0: that's kind of interesting, and I mean, I guess this this flows a bit into so, sort of what we we're talking about. Um, Earlier, with you know, perhaps some of these awards being, you know, less capitalist-friendly, um, and and maybe the potential for there being changes in, I don't know, the, the industry. And yeah, go ahead, Barry.
1: Yeah, I would like to talk to something that oh God, I can't remember anybody's name now. I wish we had the names on this. Any rate, uh, uh, when he was talking about uh, the the term liberal once meaning uh, what libertarian means now, uh, as far as we've ever settled on a definition of libertarianism, uh, one of the things that uh, uh, happened is a confusion on the definition of the word freedom. Uh, One of the things that uh, uh, I find very puzzling, uh, you know, libertarian freedom is essentially uh, or moving towards freedom is increasing the number of choices you have. Uh, in uh, the, the kind of freedom that they talk about, uh, that current liberals talk about, is that uh, uh, increasing the freedom of some by reducing it from others. They used to call that slavery, uh, and and it, uh, uh, but essentially, is what the program is, hasn't changed at all. Because that's what it's done now by, you know, you know, we're going to help this group by screwing this group. And by taking by reducing their choices, we're going to increase the choices over here. And uh, that's not libertarianism by well, any stretch of the imagination.
0: Yeah. How... Sorry, go ahead,
2: Carl. Yeah, and this the cycle is continuing. I have heard folks refer to themselves as libertarian socialists, um, which is something I don't understand at all. But clearly they think adding the word libertarian will make themselves sound better.
0: That seems like a step. Um, I don't know. That, that seems like a step like they're not quite going all the way to anarcho-communism, which which I've always struggled with as a concept but (laughs) sort of, sort of down the same path. Um, so yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, we're we're talking about all these ideas and, you know, I don't know how much all, how much time all of you spend on Twitter, which it seems like it's kind of ground zero for, you know, novel and perhaps bizarre and contradictory political ideas sort of, you know, forming and fomenting. Um, yeah, it's, it's a Petri dish of broth. Um, but I'm curious about how you think science fiction has um has changed as a platform for exploring these ideas and and you know these concepts for how a society could organize itself and what's possible and you know what what even might be desirable or you know a a new way for humans to organize. Um it, I'm not an expert here, but this this feels like it's a bit the domain of more soft science fiction where it's, you know, an exploration of societies and what it means to be a society when, you know, you have different constraints on technology relaxed. And I don't know, it seems to me that especially now that things are getting very strange and are going to continue to get strange with advances, both in, you know, information technology and Mm -hmm. biology over the course of the next 20 years, looking forward. Um, What, what do you see as, you know, the potential role for science fiction to play here but also, like, how is it actually living up to that potential that it
2: has for for exploration?
0: Did Do any of you have thoughts on that?
2: Well, I let me, let me take a, a swing mm-hmm. at that. Um, there's a lot of ideas being tossed about. You were mentioning uh, anarcho-communism. Uh, yeah. And I think there's a nice illustration of that in uh, Lois Bujold's uh, Sharing Knife series. Um, where you essentially see an anarcho-capitalist society coexisting with an anarcho-communist society, or you know, possibly anarcho-syndicalist, depending on just how finely you want to slice those gradations, um, and you see a bunch of conflicts between the societies because of their uh, different approaches, and um, you know, and yet. This is all happening in the context of what's really a romance story and monster-killing adventure as the main plot, but the background is having these two societies living in very different ways, but intermingled with each other and the conflicts that uh, come out of that. So you know, there's there's a lot of stories that tackle that, and you know, sometimes people put out a brand new idea as a story and folks can look at it and say, do we want to organize ourselves that way? Um, like the people who decided to found the church of all worlds after reading uh, a stranger in a strange land.
0: I had not been aware that somebody had done that. Is that still around?
2: I believe there's some remnants, but it's kind of the last, uh, it's some of the remaining 1960s hippies communes, but it spawned off into a whole bunch of neo-pagans. If you if you poke into neo pagan <laughs> groups, um, you will probably find some that trace themselves back to uh, Church of All Worlds members. Um, I, I ran into some of those personally in uh, in Los Angeles, who had some connections to uh, to the folks who'd done that.
0: Cool. This this has me thinking. Um, this has me thinking a bit also about the dispossessed by. Oh, uh, her name's, yeah, yeah, it was Le Guin. Um, which, I mean, like, I, I thought that was, I really enjoyed that. So, I mean, my, my background is as an economist and, you know, I, I thought that, that in particular was a really beautiful illustration of what, what actually an anarchist society would look like. And what I liked about it was that it, it's, it felt very honest to me, you know, both, both in, in particularly in portraying what would have to be done for, for this to exist in, in her particular setting, what the limitations of it would be, what the costs would be, and, you know, how how it might actually turn out and sort of fold in on itself. Um, and I, I'm curious if um, how, how you guys feel about, like, what's, what is even being explored right now? I mean, you're, you're talking about liberty and... Maybe, maybe like what, what are the big ideas that you're generating right now? And what, what do you, what are you trying to express? Like, what, what are the main ideas that you're expressing with your books in particular, as far as Liberty is concerned? And um, yeah, I guess I'll leave it there. Well,
4: one of the things that, that my books explore is the whole concept of uh, post-scarcity societies. Um, that is, mm-hmm. that, that's a huge potential s- sea change to, to uh, social and government and, and everything. Um, you know, it, m- my protagonists literally don't need anybody else. They can mm-hmm. go off into space, do their own thing, never need to interact with, with uh, human beings or society or anything. Completely self-sufficient, and when you have a society where everybody is fully or partially self-sufficient, what is the role of government in that society?
3: So in in my books, uh, the uh, so the Brain Trust series uh, actually has uh, brief and long <coughs> of, of a number of uh, the traditional kinds of. Uh, uh, libertarian uh, societies uh, there's a, a country which uh, is being rebuilt as a minarchy uh, there's a uh, uh, there's a scene where uh, I explore the uh, uh, the beginnings the first beginnings of a futarchy, uh, which is a society where the government is run by prediction markets uh, the main brain Robin Hansen's oh yes, idea yeah Uh, I I worked with uh, Robin on a prediction market scheme for one of my startup companies, but that's an entirely different story. Um, The, uh, uh, the brain, uh, the, the, the founding the brain trust uh, government is a corporate dictatorship where the people on the brain trust ships have a great deal of control over the decisions of the corporation because the corporation needs to keep them all uh, very happy and moving fast with no regulatory inhibitions in order to generate profits that can be shared by all the people and the corporation. Uh, and, the, uh, and the people in the corporate dictatorship always have uh, the ability to leave, which is uh, you know, one of the most foundational of libertarian principles, that a, a choice, the ability to choose something else, is much more powerful than a voice, the ability to be one of the participants in selecting something with a group. Uh, And uh, there's also a nod to a real anarcho-capitalist society uh, that has uh, has replaced government with a, a network of smart contracts and the ships that they live on uh, the ships themselves are smart contract servers, so the humans have been removed from the entire system. <laughs> uh, the, the the most interesting <laughs> new technology that I introduce is something uh, that I actually invented in conjunction with a group of economists and cryptocurrency software developers. Uh, it's called SmartCoin, uh, and uh, the basic uh, nature of SmartCoin. Is that uh, the algorithmic underpinnings uh, make smart shape smart coin so that it mitigates uh, uh, and flattens uh, the boom bust cycle so that the brain trust uh, is able to escape from the uh, from the uh, nightmares of Keynesian economics. So there
0: you go. Oh, fascinating!
2: I have to say that I love that. I, I was just reading that this month, and I love it. <laughs> Thank <that>. you.
1: <laughs> in, my, uh, in my little effort there, uh, I was primarily uh, focused on how to get from here to there. Uh, it's been uh, one of the uh, frustrations of life in that uh, uh, way back when, uh, uh, you know, libertarians were just discovering the word, uh somehow we get caught up in this educationalist movement the theory being that uh well once everybody knows you know the benefits of a you know libertarian society you know somehow all this governmental you know structure we have up there is going to you know drift away which also which almost makes marxism marxism seem scientific uh, and basically, uh, I took uh, uh, and the, the thing that kills me is uh, the idea for this whole thing started when I was 24 years old, <laughs> and uh, uh, it took this amount of time to finally get it written uh, before I, you know, threw the dirt on me. But the uh, the thing is that uh, uh, one of the things that I ran into. Uh, for one, for one, I don't, I don't like this term anarcho because you know it comes down to anarchism, which everyone confuses with chaos, you know, violence, and all the rest of this stuff. Uh, that's why I call mine a Freeland, and basically it is a land that is free. Uh, and the uh, uh, way to get there, uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, the, I, I, I wish the whole series had uh, uh, gotten gotten in somehow because all of the things that led up to what happened in book five happened in books one through four. <laughs> you know? and it, uh, uh, but what it amounts to is that uh, when I got to book five, I ran into the same thing that I ran into uh, back when in the 60s. Philadelphia when uh, I was up to my ears in the libertarian movement down there. Uh, uh, What role, as as, uh, uh, was said there, you know, what role does government play? And when I got to book five, uh, okay, I've got uh, a society where because of a huge national disaster and a guy that had the the knowledge and the wherewithal to get in there and Create the situation where a plebiscite can be formed to separate from the mother country. Uh, uh, you got a, you had a libertarian society. The only problem is that this mother country is going to want that back. And uh, what do you do about that? And when I went into this whole project, I said I, I, was not an anarcho anything. Uh, I thought there was a role for government. Uh, And the more I got into this book, I kept jamming up against the same thing, that if you have a society founded on the principle that uh, uh, there is no legitimate use for the initiation of coercive force or fraud, uh, okay, how do you defend yourself? And uh, this was the problem I ran into uh, square on. And, And the thing is that when I run into a problem writing, I always go back to the beginning, and in this case, it was book one, and start rewrite over again, and just keep going over and over again until uh, finally, yeah. Well, let me put it like this: the whole series comes out to three quarters of a million words, and uh, and I, I must have ten million words worth of drafts out there someplace. But uh, the thing that got me is uh, I finally found the answer uh, I needed. Uh, which was the asymmetric defense. Uh, and, and, and because I had rewritten the first four books so many times, uh, I realized that all of the pieces that I needed to come up with that solution were in the first four books. Uh, and then everything, the, the subsequent books are for the applications of it, how, it you know, uh, how the people voting with their feet kind of thing influences the surrounding states. Uh, uh as far as wanting yeah i want some of that too that's so that it. this makes
0: me think yeah this that that's a really interesting point right that that issue of a path how do you get from a state of um sort of excessive in some sense government to to a state of something more optimal if if you're less favorable toward toward government and it almost seems like for something like that, the easiest way to get there is a frontier, right? You exit as, um, as Marco was saying, you, you move, you vote with your feet and that's a very straightforward way of getting to in an anarchist system in, a, in the sense of like having, having less of this governing structure. I mean, there was, someone had a book out sometime in the last five years, I think, called the art of not being governed. And I think they, they looked a lot at nomads in particular, but I I wonder if science fiction is an especially, um, like, like straightforward or easy way of, of having that sort of a hope just because you have a frontier again, right. You can move through space, which is almost, almost boundless. And maybe if you want to get away from a government, you, you're able to use space and distance as, as a means of building something else. Um, I mean, you know, you look at something like um, Travis's books or, or even just Heinlein and the Moon is a Harsh Mistress, which feels in some way like the early the libertarian science fiction yes. example. Like you're just able to look to the stars and, and see space and, and distances as, as a means of like taking that liberty. Does that Does that seem right? Yes. Like, yes. Maybe, maybe science fiction is just a naturally libertarian medium.
1: It's libert- Uh You're not considering some of the stuff that's coming out. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, yeah. Uh, I, In fact, a long time ago uh, uh, well of course I had to stop reading science fiction when I started writing it because uh, uh, if I liked it, you know that's that guy's stuff started coming out of my fingers and if I didn't like it, I spent my time fighting with what was there. Uh, so I, I got into cop stories, but, uh, the, uh, uh, what is going on right now in this country, uh, is what you were talking about, which is basically, uh, you know, with the two party system, basically we're talking about, well, are we going to have more, more slavery or less slavery this time? Uh, and as far as, uh, I don't see any extremists around in that, uh, uh, it's always a, uh, okay, we'll do all these little social experiments and, and screw over people until the economy gets in such a bad snuff shape that we have to get some business people in here so we can get some, get, get the economy back up again. Uh, and it is, uh, uh you were mentioning about things going to hell, uh, I just remember as a little tiny kid, my father... Now, I'm sitting here watching television with my father, and my father would listen to some news item. I don't know what it was, something about government. And he said, I'm glad I'm not going to be alive to see it. And, and I did get to be alive to see it. Anyway, got a hand up there. Yeah.
3: So, so my observation is that uh, the ability to travel through space and create distance between you and all the governments is not the only way in which one would uh, expect science fiction to be very liberty-friendly. Liberty uh, the other way is the fact that technology, the really great technologies, are technologies that empower individuals, okay? And more powerful individuals are inherently, they have more choices and they are more free Uh, uh, two examples, one that the liberals hate and one that the conservatives hate at this moment. Okay. uh, One of the things that the liberals hate, although they don't fully understand how uh, deep a problem they have with this, is the 3D printer, which allows you to manufacture a gun anytime you want it. Uh, The idea of, uh, of abolishing the Second Amendment uh, is, you know, it, it's, it's comically not viable anymore for the same reason that during the prohibition of alcohol, uh, the, uh, uh, even during prohibition, uh, people were allowed to make wine in their basements. Okay, well, now you can put the 3D printer in your basement. The conservatives have a problem with another modern technology which is uh, the uh, the uh, uh, abortion pill, right? Uh, they want to prevent abortions, but you can order a pill from from Canada or just from you know from another pharmacy in another state, uh, and, uh, and 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 they can't control that. Uh, so, so technology makes us freer, makes us more powerful, and gives us more choices. I
0: wonder about that a little bit. Um, I mean, there's so so one one way that one might push back on that is just to observe the ways in which, say, China is using technology, right? Like, on one hand, you have things like 3D printing or you know uh, pharmaceuticals that are easily shipped over borders. Not that I've done that, but I've definitely done that using cryptocurrency to buy stuff from you know gray market labs in Canada and so on, um, which is great, and I'm really glad for it. But I mean, one can also see things like if, if people move to a medium where, you know, that everything is done at scale, it's very easy to impose certain amounts of censorship and also fairly straightforward to, you know, do things like track the motion of large numbers of people at once. And and, and I wonder if there's maybe some tension too, where I mean, technology, technology definitely feels to me like a more neutral player. There are things that make governing much harder and you know, very much empower individuals relative to government. I mean, even, even looking at something like say, you know, firearms. Um, But at the same time, there can be advances in technology that feel pretty, I mean, really terrifying to me, actually. Like if you wanted to build a prison state, you know, again, you could just look to China. Um, Mac, go for it.
3: Mackie.
5: I just want to say uh, technology is great, but you have to use it in the real world and they control technology with regulation a great deal. Uh, Just as an example in housing, uh, technology can't make any advances in housing because you have all the zoning requirements. Now all the requirements for each kind of uh, technology. You have codes for plumbing, codes for electrical, codes for what kind of windows you can have. Uh, as long as there's regulation prohibiting it, technology doesn't do much for you. And like with firearms, being able to make a firearm, that's easy, I'm a machinist. I can go to the hardware store, and for fifty bucks, I can make a gun that is lethal, long range, and accurate. But first time you use it outside the law, they come down on you. The uh, that's all I wanted to say about that. Cool. Yeah, um, Dennis.
4: There we go. There's a there's a natural cycle involved, where governments always try to become more restrictive and people always try to move to get out from under the restrictions. Uh, Technology is neutral in that technology doesn't care either way, but governments will always try to use the technology to increase surveillance, increase control, you know, increase uh, power People will always try to use the technology to try to get around governments. Uh, encrypt, uh, encrypted uh, conversations so that governments can't uh, eavesdrop. Um, then governments try to use facial recognition technology. People develop masks or even makeup or glasses to fool the facial recognition technology. It, it's an arms race. It's, it's like evolution in action, except... Technologically based.
0: Cool,
1: Barry. Now, one of the things I found—how uh, do you get the hand back down? Click again? on the hand again. <laughs>
0: you just click it again. I got right. it for
1: you. Okay, thanks. Click uh, it again. One of the, one of the things that uh, uh, is troublesome about uh, uh, technology as a as a great potential to increase one's freedom in a free society. Uh, Facebook and 3D printers and uh, iPhones and things like that aren't doing squat for the people in North Korea. Uh, It's uh, uh, particularly, uh, uh, you know, in the kind of atmosphere where, uh, uh, you know, like like in Germany, you know, people, you know, hiding your radios, you know, so that they can listen to the BBC. Uh, one of the, uh, you know, what was that? The, oh, the uh, uh, increase. What the heck was I talking I don't know. Brain. Yeah, I, you know, th- thanks to being dropped on my head a few times when I was in the Army, I've got this little brain damage <laughs> problem that uh, 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 you wouldn't believe the note systems I have to take so that I can get through a book without losing my place. Anyhow. Come back to me sometime. I may think of whatever whatever it was.
0: Yeah. So um, I guess one one other thing that's maybe a bit interesting to me, talking with Carl and related to, you know, being in the army, um, is is your backgrounds. You know, Mackie, you just mentioned that you're a machinist. um, And it seems like all of you maybe have some pretty technical backgrounds. And... I, I wonder how much of that informs what you write about or, or maybe even if, if you see other people writing science fiction without technical backgrounds who, who end up writing different sorts of stories.
3: It's it certainly, uh, you know, I mean, it's certainly the case that my background informs all of uh, my writing. Uh, it, my, my background is uh, I started my career as a software engineer uh, wound up uh, being the boss of a, several you know uh, silicon Valley startup companies wound up as a, a vp of engineering a fortune at a fortune 500 company and all of those experiences wind up being used in the books uh, uh, and and so uh so there you have it
2: yeah carl i i've done some of that. Um, my first trilogy, uh, Torch Ship Trilogy, was using my experience as you know an actual professional rocket scientist. I had been an astrodynamicist doing satellite orbits, launch vehicle trajectories, and other kind of system engineering stuff. And so that let me do a fairly convincing job of portraying what it would be like to be the crew on a tortship propelled, uh, tramp freighter. Um, but, you know, generally I think we don't draw just on professional experience. Um, you know, after tortship, I wrote, uh, the lost war, a fantasy story, which was taking when i had uh, been in the SCA, a historical reenactment group and writing a story of, okay, let's pick up these people and drop them into a fantasy wilderness and see how well they cope. And some of which was with the government of, okay, here we have this governmental, or you know, this group organized to have a king selected by a tournament so that we can have pageantry and sword fighting and all sorts of fun excuses for parties. What happens when this system is actually trying to keep us organized so we can survive? And uh, the strains on that made for some interesting story possibilities.
1: I think that my uh, background—the only technical background I had was uh, uh, I repaired Hawk missiles, and when I was in the army, uh, my uh, education uh, in college and uh, self-education is mostly in the area of philosophy, economics, and—and and for about about five really horrible years, I was I was a rabid objectivist. Uh, <laughs> which which <laughs> you know, when I Maybe, uh, what what made it horrible? <laughs> well, what made it horrible is that you get into a morality contest, you know, I'm more moral than you are, you know, and is he moral? You know, you know, it, you know, what you're listening to Beethoven, you intellectual monster, you know, and you know this kind of crap, and uh, it, it was uh, it, it was a nightmare. Uh, finally, when uh, uh, Ayn Rand was chasing uh, Nathaniel Brandon's hot little body around the office, you know, I was okay, I've had enough. Uh, but the point I was making before, uh, I think it was uh, Carl, uh, or sorry, I don't know, one of, one of you said something about, you know, when the regulation comes out, it's a natural thing for people to push against it. Uh I have found that people who, uh, when they're choosing up sides, uh, for example, the masks in the big shutdown, and now you know everybody is saying that if you're vaccinated, you got you don't need the mask. Uh, but uh, there are I, we've got armies of people stomping around, even in Maine. You know, you know, you are morally corrupt or racist if you don't wear a mask. And you know uh, I've heard it described you know that they, that the that the mask is a maga hat for liberals you know <laughs> I'm believing it too
0: Nacky
5: <laughs> I have worked at, when I made a list up on time and I've worked at 30 some different jobs. I mentioned being a machinist, wow. I've actually been six or seven flavors of machinist, mold maker, tool maker, a diamond polisher, blah, blah, blah. A lot of other jobs, I had a plumbing business, I had a window washing business, uh, I've sold shoes, I can't even remember all the things I've done easily, but I'm going to be 74 years old next month. And for writing, more important than understanding chemistry and physics to pre- present a scientifically hard, valid book, I've had experience with all kinds of people. Traveled all over the United States, lived in different areas, met very different pe- kinds of people and I'm a time traveler too I I've talked with a lady that had dinner with the Shah of Iran and I've talked with a Mexican man that rode with the Federales against Villa. all these things all of it go into the writing and I had a kid about 20 years old (laughs) ask me how he could start writing like me. And I was at a loss. I told him, you have to go do something and have some experience and live before you can relate these things to somebody else. That's all.
0: Yeah. No, that... That is interesting. Um, I, I have some thoughts about that, but let me let me t- pass it on to Mark first. So
3: I just wanted to observe that whereas Barry's having a problem with uh, with uh, liberals who who uh, for for whom their mask is their uh, is their version of a MAGA hat. I live in uh, Kingman, Arizona, uh, the deepest heartland of Trump loyalty. Uh, and around here, your greater risk is to have somebody try to rip the mask off your face uh, when you go into a store because it's uh, such a violation of our freedom. Uh, so anyway, we're getting all kinds of strange reactions. Oh.
0: Out, yeah, yeah, it feels so. Yeah, actually, maybe let's talk about that. Um that actually feels like a bit of a segue to sort of the, the amount of hell that's, you know, being predicted or, or at least being factored into the writing that you guys have done recently. Um, I mean, it, it does feel like a lot of things have fallen apart over the last year or two or maybe more that it's been revealed that things have been falling apart for a while. I'm not sure which is more true, but there's, there's a strong theme of, um, I don't know, kind of eschatology in some of these books or, or kind of at least collapses. And I'm curious how much of that has been. What, what, what's been informing that or motivating that? Is it, is it just something that's convenient as a means of saying, all right, well, everything fell apart. And so that's been a way for us to, you know, have this, this new way of organizing things, or do you think it's just sort of the mood seeping in? Uh, Barry.
1: Uh Um, As far as uh, uh, my writing is, and and my personal observation, uh, uh, I don't know who said the quote. Uh, It might have been in one of Ronald Reagan's speeches, but basically the function of government is to cure the problems that government creates. And I have seen this so many times where, okay, this particular... Uh, group of uh, people uh, needs to be helped. I mean, they're really in poverty, this, that, and the other thing. Uh, So let's pay them to be poor. And, okay, we pay those to be poor. And, or or like right now, uh, uh, we have, there's a restaurant that my wife and I, through the shutdown, we we supported mightily because we didn't want it to go under because so many businesses have gone under during the shutdown uh, and now things are starting to loosen up. Uh, they can't get a dishwasher. They got into a bidding war with another restaurant with this one lone dishwasher who's probably making more now than it's a bank president. You know, it's it's uh, uh, it's really tight because uh, what do they what is it? Uh, if you uh, get the full unemployment thing, you're making something like thirty seven thousand dollars a year uh which is kind of hard to you know go from there to a you know $25,000 job uh and it it's, it's like uh uh when uh, uh we had a problem we had a problem we have a problem in Maine uh, uh with teenage pregnancy and uh, it was a very small problem 40 years ago and they decided okay these kids need help you know prenatal care and all this good stuff. Let's pay people. Let's pay young girls to get pregnant. <laughs> you know, you were know, supposed to be aid. And basically, uh, uh, actually, uh, we're number one now in teenage pregnancies.
0: Wait, seriously?
1: Seriously? I'm, I'm mostly,
0: honestly, I'm mostly amazed that there is a government program that. Managed to spur fertility.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, Casey, it's not phrased like uh, you know, uh, uh, it's not phrased like you know, you know, lift people to get pregnant. It's pay. It's phrased yeah. like people who get pregnant. These kids don't have jobs because the government doesn't allow them to work until they're a certain age, anyway, and uh, and they don't have an education worth of shit, you know. So why, you know, uh, so basically, we'll give them money, and you create a market. For what? I remember Clear as Bell, this young woman. Uh, uh, she was, uh, uh, what, 17, and she was uh, uh, envious of her older sister who was pregnant and getting all this attention. So she decided she would get pregnant. And she, gosh, she fed her. Anyway, uh, she got pregnant, and, and suddenly she's uh, being paid for it. And uh, well, she has to take care of the kids somehow. Uh, this is the kind of thing that uh, that's a, that's just a little micro corner of all of the different government programs and things with this, that, and the other. And I'm not even counting the uh, pocket lining ones and uh, the ones you get votes. Uh, these are, you know, j- just a gobbledygook of uh, programs that, uh, that that's why in my book, you know, I had this a whole series of uh, organizations whose job it is to go into a free, a newly freed uh, society and untangle all the governmental programs and things.
3: Uh, My my observation on this is that uh, if I could get uh, one lesson uh, through to all the different people on the political spectrum, uh, it would be, well, it would either be, let's uh let's inundate people with uh critical thinking, uh but the other one would be let's inundate people with uh the rules of incentive engineering because you've gotta be really careful about uh about how you are incentivizing uh, behaviors, the side effects of bad incentives. Are generally far more, far greater and more horrific than what the original goal was.
0: <clears throat> so, yeah, Carl. All
2: right. And I completely agree on incentives. I worry about, you know, welfare systems that we have incentivizing people to do self harming behavior. Um, I think there's a good argument for a. a basic income, universal basic income, which has its own problems, but, you know, if you don't tie it to not working, you know, if someone can go out and do one day of work without losing their, you know, their food and rent money, then they've got an incentive to keep doing some work and keep doing some more. Um, I will also say that as writers, we kind of have a bad incentive to make things horrible, to give our hero, to make our heroes look better and give them interesting problems. Um, In my book, you know, the heroes have made contact with this empire and it's like, you know, is this just one of those big corrupt empires or is this really bad? And then they find out that, you know, the, they have erased all history. The only bit of history you're allowed to know is that they dropped asteroids on the planet earth to suppress a rebellion. And it's like, okay, you know, very evil. And so that's something, you know, as a writer, you know, I will, I will pull that card out to just, you know, do what, uh, in Hollywood, they call the kick the dog moment to establish that the villain is really villainous. Um, as for the U.S., yes, there's problems, you know, but I think a lot of those problems have been building for a while. There's some interesting graphs of the national debt, and you can see it making you know, a very much an exponential curve, you know, getting steeper and steeper every presidency. And um, you know, there was you know, okay, there was an accidental glitch in the Clinton administration because of the dot com bubble. But as far as, you know, everyone has kept going, it keeps, keeps going. So the bubble's inflating sooner or later, it's going to burst. Um, You know, but it's definitely not a, a new problem. It's, you know, it's a whole bunch of things that have been going on for a while mounting up.
1: In my book, I'm not describing anything that, uh, I didn't embellish anything. Uh, The descriptions of the uh, U.S. economy and life in the U.S. and also in Mexico uh, is basically what's going on right now. I mean, (laughs) Tamaulipas, which is where my guide goes, is uh, the murder capital of Mexico.
0: Which is saying something.
3: (laughs) And Uh, the exponential growth uh, in national debt is another perfect example of an incentive engineering problem identified by de Tocqueville uh, hundreds of years ago uh, when he said uh, democracy uh, uh, works fine until the government realizes uh, that it can bribe the people with their own money. Uh, And we are looking at uh, the outcome of that incentive failure.
0: Yeah. So, so this is, this is pretty interesting to me. I mean, Carl, you were talking about, you know, having a kick the dog moment to establish just how bad, you know, these, um, these antagonists are. And it seems like something that might be a challenge for writers who take a a more libertarian stance um, against a government, like say perhaps exists right now is that, you know, if you look at something like, you know, socialism, it's a little bit tricky because if you're a socialist and you want to portray socialism in a good light, it's very easy to do that, right? It's not a matter of we're, you know, forcing people to give up money at, at gunpoint. It's well we're look at all of these people that we're helping. And you sort of have to come at it and, and really manage to like portray these people who can claim to us sensibly have very good intentions as, you know, being villainous in some way or another. Um, and, you know, Ayn Rand did this, I think fairly well, although it was a little bit cartoonish in her case and something like Atlas shrugged where, you know, there's, there, there were various deep levels of corruption that, you know, she had portrayed in her government and she had some, some protagonists who, you know, were, were also perhaps a little bit cartoonish, I think by design where, you know, they, they just wanted to be left alone and make these, you know, wonderful things, um, and, you know, make a profit on it. Um, but, but it, do, do you think, do you think it is an a special challenge for, for people who are trying to portray a libertarian society? Or is it relatively easy to just say, look, these people just want to be left alone look at these people who are not going to let them be left alone. And that's, that's satisfying.
2: There's, there are some struggles with it. I mean, there's some great rugged individualist stories you can do. I mean, essentially the whole western genre getting transplanted into space defines you know, a large share of of science fiction um but there's only so many stories you, you can do with that and you know, you can see you know you've mentioned uh, travis corcoran's powers of the earth mm-hmm. and uh moon is a harsh highlands moon is a harsh mistress are kind of doing two different takes on the same same story It gets gets hard trying to push it, um, particularly when people try to make it back. I mean, I've dealt with the question of, you know, why are you opposed to taxes? Don't you want to pay money to help the homeless? And my response is, I'm great with my money going to help the homeless. I'm opposed to my money being used to tear down homeless people's tents and pour bleach on the food that pastors are giving away for the homeless and enforcing zoning regulations that keep boarding houses from being built for the homeless. And that is something which is kind kind of subtle and, and doesn't lead itself to the dramatic gunfights that are so fun to write and fun to read. And so there are some market issues there.
0: Cool. <clears throat> Mackie?
5: The um, thing about liberty is everybody wants liberty for themselves. But what are you uh, willing to let other people have for their liberty? Uh, You were talking about these pregnant uh, teenagers. What they're doing makes sense to them. They're grasping... Uh, a life that they don't see any other way to have. In my books, I have uh, very young characters that are very active uh, promoting revolution. And I get complaints from a lot of readers, and they say, I have a 14-year-old girl, and they couldn't do any of the things that your character is doing in your book. Uh, but they live in a different world than most of history. Uh, I pointed out to people that families in England used to send, families in England would have one son as an heir and maybe a backup. What do you do with a third son Mm -hmm. when he's 12 or 13 years old? you send him off on an ocean ship in the Navy? and from 12 or 13 years old by the time he's 15 if he hasn't uh uh, made rank and is looking to become certified as a captain he's a failure and it wasn't uh wasn't an easy thing to do sailing ship technology is complicated And being a commander of a ship of older men is complicated, but at that age they did those kind of things. And in the West, when people were ranching, they would send a kid out alone on a horse uh, with a rifle and a couple of hand tools to to ride the fence line and uh, take care of it. Kids used to do things like that, and now we don't let them. It's horrible. And I remember when I was 13 years old, I wanted to sell ice cream in Columbus, Ohio, and they wouldn't let me sell ice cream because I wasn't old enough to sell ice cream. Uh, That's typically the kind of stupid things governments do to the kids, and it isn't hard to find examples. I, I have no trouble at all in my books making fun of government. It's People understand that and they enjoy the humor of it if you uh, come up with examples that mirror the ridiculous things they see every day on the news. Uh, sometimes I have little lists of headlines of what's happening. When one of my characters uh, reads the news and she'll read stuff like uh, police in Columbus, Ohio, tore up a woman's front yard because she had decorative cabbages and the cops say she didn't have an agricultural license and a, a cabbage is a cabbage. They relate to that easily.
0: Cool. Yeah, that's that's a fair point. I guess I guess there are enough cartoonishly evil things that governments do on a regular basis that it might be pretty easy to pick some of those out. Um, Barry?
1: One of the things that uh, uh, was a big flaw, particularly in the educationalist libertarian movement, uh, was that, you know, how to portray a libertarian society. And next thing you know, you know, if somebody said, you know, well, what do you mean by libertarian society? Then they, then they pile von Mises, Hayek, and a bunch of books on somebody and, you know, here study, learn, you know, be enlightened. And uh, a thing I learned a long time ago is that, uh, uh, let, let's face it, all of these immigrants that are trying to get into the United States aren't coming here for capitalism. They're coming for jobs. They're coming for food. They're coming for not having somebody knock on their door in the middle of the night and drag him off, you know, to get, you know, beaten up by some, you know, secret cop. And the thing is that, that that's where I, I did in, uh, that, that's what the white diamond is in uh, my book, in that basically you've got, you know, the libertarian society, Pingo, uh, and the people that are coming in, uh, there's a number of characters in the book who are socialists, who don't want to leave? Uh, well, the, their, their definition of socialism is getting stretched nine different ways so that they can accept that where they are in a free society. Uh, but the thing is that, you know, uh, how it, you know, you got this free society, okay, the people there are, you know, they're well fed, they're well paid, uh, they're free, they're, uh, you know, not being uh, pushed around by government. And the people across the border see this. They're they're not thinking in terms of capitalism or anything else, although that's what it is. Uh, And and they're not thinking in terms of anti-socialism. It's just that uh, uh, things look better over there. So that's where I'm going. And that's that's basically how how, uh, I think uh, if it is ever going to get off the ground, that that's how it's going to have to do it, by actually having a free society someplace, or close to a free society someplace, and uh, uh, and locking it in somehow. That's one of the problems with uh, uh, with the United States, with the, with the the democracy end of this, and the republic end of this, is that. Uh, we seem to be able to change the rules, and, and decide you know who we want you know pick winners and losers and all the rest of this good stuff and uh, uh, you there's no way to vote away your rights uh, in in the uh, society I created. That's it. Cool.
0: Um, well, so we're over an hour now. Um, I wonder if, if there's anything else that anyone especially wants to talk about that, that might have fallen out of uh, what we've covered so far. Uh,
3: so I have one observation for those who are listening to uh, uh, Carl's uh, comment on the universal basic income. Uh, if you're curious about that, uh, uh, don't look at Andrew Yang's uh, UBI proposal. Look at Charles (laughs) Murray's UBI proposal. Charles Murray uh, uh, – as nearly as I can tell, Andrew Yang started with Charles Murray's uh, uh, proposal. But Charles Murray is actually mostly a libertarian, uh, and it was reading his discussion of uh, a UBI, how to fund it, what the consequences are that actually persuaded me, uh, a pretty hardcore libertarian, uh, to embrace the idea of a UBI for the United States at this moment in history uh, with the uh, justification starting with the fact that uh, we are looking over the course of the next 25 years at the transformation of our economy into a robot-based economy where there are very few jobs that humans are well qualified for. Uh, and so we need to move forward to a society, uh, that wherein the concept of work is not so important. Uh, I mean, it's, it's very close to, uh, it's sort of the beginning of Dennis's, uh, post-scarcity world. So Charles Murray.
0: Yeah. Um, interesting. I, you know, if you had mentioned Charles Murray, I had not guessed that you would have gone with UBI as the as the specific thing that he was responsible for. But um, that, that, that's a really interesting point. I I've started thinking about more about UBI as like reverse capitation at this point, which is kind of an interesting idea, and it does seem efficient in certain ways. Um, Carl,
2: yeah, you know, there's one thing that. Um, had been talked about about previously but hadn't come up uh, in this discussion is that the publishing industry has really changed.
1: And, oh, yes. Uh,
2: some of us here, I know uh, Mark and Barry, uh, at least, had had some traditionally published novels, uh, some of which are on my shelves. And, um, you know, but now we're all, you know, taking advantage of the change with the kind. Kindle Direct Publishing and and other uh, systems that have been set up, so that we can you know essentially bypass that and do it. So, I I had actually you know never written a novel because I'd seen so many horror stories of guys who wrote novels and broke their hearts trying to get them published and couldn't. And so I would do gaming articles and things like that and blog. Um, but I wouldn't write anything more than, than a short story. And then suddenly Jeff Bezos changed the world and anybody who wanted could go ahead and publish their novel. A lot of people and did. it's like well, yeah. And, um, and let's face it, some of those novels only a mother would read, but there's another <laughs> there's a lot of mothers out there and Jeff Bezos wants that market. Um, and I've been happy to put my novels out there and, um, it's, it's a great opportunity to express ourselves that in the past was strongly discouraged, you know, not intentionally, but just by the mechanics of the market.
0: Yeah. Would, would you call that, I'll get to you Mackie in one moment. Would you, would you say this is net a liber, sort of a liberatory
2: technology rather than, I don't know, something that's it's it's absolutely liberating it's liberating people's ideas anybody's you know ideas they can put out into the market marketplace you know and possibly their idea is romancing a werewolf is great um, you know some people want to do other kinds of romances i seen there's a romance novel about someone dating a were meerkat and yes, that's intentionally comedy, but it's an idea that would have never gotten out to the rest of the world without aren't, this change. Aren't there some books and that are about
4: sex with dinosaurs?
2: The, uh, Chuck Single. I, I think you can have sex with in you know any any anything you want to name, and it's on Amazon somewhere. And if it's not on Amazon, it's on the you know Rule Thirty Four. There's there's porn of it on the internet. Um, yeah,
0: I I have a friend who makes a living, I think, <laughs> primarily at this point by writing extremely niche erotica. And you know what? More power to them. Like they, they distribute it via Amazon and they, they have a comfortable life for themselves as a consequence. I don't know if it's good, but, you know, it works and it's, it's taking advantage of a market. It's
1: ultimately victimless.
0: Uh, Ma- yep. <laughs> Mackie.
5: I just recently um, taught myself the f- format for paper publishing and have my first actual paper hardback book up on Amazon. I, I'm i kind of coming at this reversed. I, I had no connection with traditional publishing. Uh, Jim Bain, when he had the... Uh, that briefly had the Universe magazine uh, was my first opportunity to write something. I sent away a short story to him and I never experienced that uh, endless rejection. Very first thing I ever wrote, uh, he sent me back a check, I remember, for seven hundred and six dollars for a short story and I've only been writing and publishing through Amazon for about 12 years now and I have 26 different things on Amazon Uh, I don't know how long Amazon will last but I'm gonna write it as long as it lasts and uh, the book lending the borrowing uh, treats me really, really well. You, I make more off that than I do actually selling books. The, uh, you only get a little bit less than a half a cent, but I have had over 51 million page views. So they add up pretty good. Uh, we could talk about the state of publishing and how it's changing for over an hour easily.
1: True. Oh and me I went yeah. and, uh, the second thing I wrote got published uh, in fact uh, that was in 77 uh, there was uh, uh, I was I don't know it was like a, I could didn't matter what I wrote zam it was being bought in you know, the magazines but uh, uh when I started doing novels and stuff it's, especially when I started uh edging into, uh, ideas that didn't involve, you know, uh, space monsters, uh, uh, I started getting, uh, a lot of, uh, uh, rough times where I, will never forget, uh, uh, what was a sea of glass, uh, a book of mine, you know, where, uh, uh, Jim, uh, what's his name? Frankel, uh, I was Blue Jay Publishing then before it went belly up and, uh, uh he, uh, uh, I sent it off to him, and, uh, uh, or my agent did. And uh, when I uh, 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 got to, uh, was it Northeast Con 3, I think it was, or Northeast one of the Northeast Cons, uh, I met with Jim uh, Frankel, and he said, uh, you know, Barry, uh, you know, that, that, that book is, uh, I started reading uh, Sea of Glass, and it almost made me throw up. And I said, was it that good or that bad, you know? And he said, uh, there's an awful lot of violence in this book. I said, yeah, well, no, uh, you know, my character had a violent life. Uh, and, you know, frankly, it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense, you know, if he hadn't had that violent life, you know, for, you know, what he had to go through and what he had to decide towards the end. And he says, well, you know, I don't know about publishing this, one thing I said, I don't make decisions during science fiction conventions. You know, tell you what, you know, you write up, you know, what you want in the way of suggestions and you mail it to me back to my office. And when I get back, I'll take a look at it. And when I got back, there were 12 pages of changes that he wanted to make. And I read actually a page and a half of it before I threw it in a wastebasket. You know, I said, you know, take it or leave it. Uh, And it was, uh, uh, that was, that was some of the nicest time I had. I've had books just, you know, No, we are not going to publish anything involving this, you know. And uh, frankly, when I finish writing something, I want to get on with the next project. I don't want to sit there and gut grind over the current thing. I was fortunate enough to have uh, established a readership uh, through the traditional publishing so that, you know, when I do it now through our our Enchanted's imprint, uh, you know, I got enough to encourage my behavior, you know. And frankly, uh, a fifty or sixty percent uh, royalty uh, from a few people is making me a lot more money than I was getting with seven percent, you know, from a traditional publisher. Just speaking in mercenary terms.
0: No, no, that's fine. This is this is a libertarian discussion, so I think that's permitted. <laughs> cool um cool all right um well uh any any last words from anybody i uh i don't want to just call it um maybe maybe just along the lines of where where you see science fiction going it it seems like with all of these changes in sort of the composition of who might be interested in science fiction at any time um changes to publishing changes in in reading (laughs) patterns i guess um what 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 do you see happening with science fiction going forward? Um, we can start with Carl.
2: The, I hate to see it, but there does seem to be a kind of splintering of science fiction um, along with the, you know, along roughly the same lines that American society is splintering, you know, and you wind up with authors specifically identified with one tribe or the other um but the 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 plus side that i see is that there's also a lot of splintering among those tribes and particularly with the publishing opportunities we've discussed you know anybody can go out and put a novel anybody can go and start up a science fiction convention i have some friends who saw their favorite convention decide to go virtual this year and they said no we want to meet each other and we want to like actually hug each other and share drinks and such. And so they just put together their own science fiction convention. Um, And you put together your own podcast, which can be the seed of another splinter of fandom or, you know, some other, other things. So well, I see a lot of splintering. I, I also see a lot of opportunity for each of those splinters to uh, to grow into its own tree or, or Mickey Mouse animated broom or whatever it, it may turn out to be.
1: Yeah. I don't know. I, I'm going to get a button printed up that says, you know, you're a real libertarian until you've been disinvited. Uh, to a science fiction convention. Uh, I've had two of them that basically, you know, there's one I was going, you know, Reader Con down there. I was going to that thing for God knows how many years. And suddenly I got this, I got this, you know, I I, I was typically presenting my ideas for panels and workshops and things like that. I sent them down there and, and they said, well, you know, I got this little thing back from the program uh, chair saying, well, yeah uh, 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 you know, this year we're not going to uh, have you as a guest and you know I said, why and uh, uh, and well the party line was that well uh, 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 yeah, uh, I did this on a phone call you know but well uh, basically we're trying to make room for new talent
4: I said, So
1: oh. Okay, uh, that's why they shot Gary Cooper, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, oh, well. It uh, and it, uh, there was two two science fiction conventions I've been disinvited
4: to, uh,
1: and uh, uh, yeah, well, they say it's not for political reasons.
3: Yeah, go ahead, so uh, I'm just going to say that I too feel despair about the uh, uh, the divisive, the ferocious divisiveness that has set in between uh, the Democrats and the Republicans. Uh, and, but I am going to go uh, and support Carl's upbeat uh, 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 f- prediction for the future wherein the splintering continues and eventually allows us to coalesce on things that hopefully may be better. Go Carl.
0: Yeah. I mean, it does seem like a really beautiful example of exit working, right? I mean, go and start your own con and, and, you know, it's much easier than starting a new government or establishing a new city or country. I mean, just get some friends together and, and take your toys. Yeah. Um, Dennis, Mackie, any, any thoughts on this before we round up? Okay, cool. Well, guys, it has been an absolute blast. Um, Thank you for coming on. I'll, I'll get this edited and put out sometime in the next couple of days. Um, And I'll I'll have links to all of your books in the, um, in the description and comments on Twitter. Um, I really appreciate your time and, and Carl, thank you in particular for putting this together. This is um, very exciting and I think more ambitious than anything that I've done on this podcast before. So it's 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 really been a pleasure, guys.
2: Okay. And if I can oh, do a last yeah, commercial least. announcement, um, if you're interested in, in our books, also, if you're a uh, Libertarian Futurist Society member, please remember to vote for the Prometheus. And if you're not a uh, member please feel free to uh visit the society's webpage, uh lfs.org if i remember right and uh consider becoming a member so you can vote on the prometheus award
0: oh, yeah good point
4: i will um, link that i don't too. want to yeah. sabotage anything by closing down the browser too quickly are there any rules for how long we have to stay on or is there a message
0: yeah yeah there, that'll come up i'll hit stop recording and um Then there there will be progress bars for everybody.
2: Cool.
4: All right. Yes, thank you everybody. (laughs) Thank
2: Thank you. you. And thanks
0: for having us, Sam. Oh yeah. Absolutely my pleasure.